Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Okay, Adam, good evening. Good evening, Richard. So we're going to have a conversation about Iran and the goings on there. There's been a recent eruption of protests that have subsequently erupted into violence. And this seems to be a regular factor of Iranian life now. Um, over the, the treatment and the death, perhaps murder, of this lady, Masha Amini, I think we both like to talk about these situations in the broader historical context from where they arise. So what, what what are your opening thoughts on this, Adam, the situation emerging in what we're seeing in Iran? Well, I guess it's a combination of a couple of things that I've read over the uh, past couple of weeks. Of course, that we're talking about the September, um, I believe it's September 18th or, or uh, 17th, the police custody of Masha Amin, Amini, uh, who was a um, an Iranian woman detained by the uh guidance patrol which is the religious morality police and she was um arrested for uh violating the mandatory hijab law and allegedly she was killed in police custody according to eyewitnesses she had been severely beaten by the guides patrol officers now of course to, to on the flip side of that coin there were rumors that the video that was shown we saw on on viral media that it was not related to Amin, that she wasn't hit by any policeman, but she fell because she had a um, brain seizure or something like that. Nevertheless, uh, what came from this was uh, days of protests, uh, with growing protests. It wasn't just from Amenia, by the way. It just was a, pre- a precipitating factor. Over the past couple of weeks and months, uh, U.S. had um, has a number of different economic sanctions along with Great Britain. And what happened is, is that when you do economic sanctions on a country, the one populace that it hurts the most are the poor and the middle class. The affluent class never gets uh, affected by these sanctions. Medicine, food, uh, daily necessities are lacking. And these sanctions have been going on for a couple of years from the United States, but just recently, in these last couple of months, the United States has really ratcheted up the pressure of other countries not doing business with the Iranians. And with the um, Masha Amini killing, the protests have been nationwide and they have spread across the social classes, which really puts a lot of pressure on the um, government, the supreme leader who uh, has come out and denounced the protests, saying that the CIA, the United States Intelligence Services, are behind the facilitation of these protests. I wouldn't say he's wrong in in a context. I I also don't want to say it's totally facilitated by the Central Intelligence Agency, but throughout history, Richard, we have seen uh, where a country comes under economic sanctions by the United States, where the CIA has taken advantage of the situation and inflamed uh, the protests uh, because it would actually go to weaken the state. Now, throughout history, the United States, even during the 1970s in South America with El Salvador, and of course in the 1990s with Iraq in the oil for food program, for example, we have seen countries come under harsh economic sanctions, usually by a either ultra-nationalist government or an ultra-orthodox government. It's usually far right-wing, where separatists will come or protests will come 
And these are facilitated by a number of factors and as well as the United States CIA, who will basically infiltrate some of these smaller groups and spread either disinformation, uh, misinformation, or even have people in these affluent, uh, these influential movements to precipitate an aggressive form of protest where there's violence so that the state could react. And then the United States will basically come out with a response saying, we have to do something and get involved. And that's how the United States usually get involved in these uh, protests and movements. And once that happens, usually what happens is military invasion. Now, I'm not saying the United States would military invade Iran, even though they've been clamoring this for quite some time with Israel and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf uh, also facilitating the uh, military invasion of the country. But the Ayatollah has dismissed these unrests and protests, saying it's a hybrid war caused by not just the United States, but also by um, foreign actors of the Gulf as well. But women and uh, uh, school children and um, people from the educated uh, background uh, universities have come out and demonstrated, uh, in addition to demands of increased rights for women, which are being hampered by the uh, supreme leadership, and they want to overthrow the religious Islamic Republic, which has been setting them apart from major protest movements in Iran, which have focused on the more important issues of elections and economic woes and the government response has been widely condemned by the the United States and the coalition partners, of course, which I find ironic considering the the history behind the the countries involved. And so the protests, you know, they haven't just happened recently. You know, there's been protests in the country going as far back as um, 2008, 2009, and we've seen them again in 2017 and 18, but recently in the last uh, five months, we have seen a rise in uh, attention into what is going on with the the country itself. And of course, the intricate domestic issues that are hampering the lower middle classes, which are causing the uh, religious police and the religious part of the government of Iran to react, overreact, in a very aggressive manner, which is illuminated by the legacy uh, U.S. national media. Yeah, I would overwhelmingly suspect that whilst strange things happen at sea, Masha Amini probably did not randomly have a heart attack in police custody as a 22-year-old woman. The Iranian government put out the news that she had had a brain operation as a child, mm. and that's what caused it. And her father has disputed that. But women being beaten up in Iranian prisons is consistent with mm-hmm. probably thousands upon thousands of testimonies that there, there is this brutality to the system. And this morality piece emerged immediately after the revolution to the shock of Iranian women who were used to walking around without mm. any sort of veiling. Actually, uh, Reza Shah, the, the Shah, not the one that was overthrown in the revolution, the previous king, he'd banned the veil, mm. actually, which also had detrimental uh, impacts because there were some Iranian women who wouldn't leave their houses afterwards. So actually closeted a lot of uh, Iranian women when he did that. But there was this drive amongst the Pavlavi family to really modernize Iran and get it away from this backwards kind of medieval thinking as they saw it. And then the reaction against that at the revolution. But just to give some historical context, do you know how long Iran has been under some sort of imperial yoke 
Adam? Well, I believe it's been going on for a couple of decades now. Uh, we, we can go back 200 years. Yes, we can. But at the sake of the behest of the listener, I usually keep <laughs> it recent. <laughs> I usually uh, like to think that, you know, if we go back further and further, people tend to tune out. But yeah, you'll be right. There's a lot of interest in the country itself. And I, I think basically it comes from a couple of issues. And one of them is the geopolitical issue and the issue of religion. And uh, for people that don't know, uh, Iran is the largest uh, Shia country in the world. It is also a largest exporter of oil in the world as well. And it also is a very strategic area of the Middle East as well. It is basically a very valuable country in its own right in regards to a lot of the issues I brought up. But as of recent, uh, by the way, just for those who are not familiar with the geographical outlook or the topographical outlook of Iran, Iraq is the uh, is to the west of it, Pakistan to the east, and of course, Azerbaijan and um, Turkmenistan, uh, sorry for my New York accent, uh, which is north of the country. And of course, to the south, southwest is, of course, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and um, United Arab Emirates. So there's a lot of a lot of areas that are surrounding Iran. Of course, you have the Black Sea and, of course, the Persian Gulf, uh, Black Sea to the north, the Persian Gulf to the south of the country. So it's, it's sitting in a very strategic, valuable strategic area of the world. And there's a lot of history regarding U.S. imperialism with the country. And uh, one such instance that I always like to keep to the viewers or listeners' interest is, of course, the infamous 1953 coup d'etat of the um, Prime Minister Mohammed Mossadegh. The United States was in favor of uh, strengthening the monarchical rule of uh, the Shah, Mohammed uh, Reza Pahlavi. And what happened was many, many years later, they found out that the United States CIA was behind the, uh, the coup of um, Mohammed Mossadegh and that the government under General um, Zahed was formed under King, self-appointed King Mohammed Reza Pahlavi who is also known as the, uh, the last Shah of Iran. And what happened was the country was now ruled more firmly instead of as a democracy, now as a monarch. Those in the know knew that Pavlavi wasn't running really the country, it was the United States. And basically he stood in power, which led to protests of its own right, the bread riots, which uh, basically uh, came to a head uh, many years later. And then, of course, the infamous... Um, 1979 protests, which was, by the way, widespread. And I like to call it the, the very first Arab Spring, because what we saw in Saudi Arabia, what we saw in Afghanistan, what we saw in Iran was the rise of the religious uh, uh, republics of, and of course, the rise of religious fundamentalism at the same time. But Pavlavi uh, ruled for a number of years, and um, until 1979, when the people finally uh, had enough of these of this Western-backed ruler, and the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini took over the country, which, uh, of course, from there uh, led to the precipitating factors of the problems that we see today, which are from the effects and the ripple effects of U.S. imperialism going back as 1953. But you, you make the case of 200 years. Uh, yes, indeed. But uh, I, I have to admit that I'm not too well-learned about 
Iran uh, prior to, say, the 1953 coup? Well, at the risk of losing the listener, I'll just go through go through it for two minutes. Sure. The, so the Russians actually occupied Iran in the early 19th century, mm. and they carved off the provinces of Dagestan, now part of Russia, and then the independent what became the independent countries of Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. And then by the end of the 19th century, they had to share the country with the British, who ran it as like almost a colony. Okay, where. British business interests took over all the mines, the railroad infrastructure, a lot of the manufacturing around, a lot of the agriculture, and pushed them towards cash crops. We actually participated a famine in the 1870s, mm. where around 15 to 20 percent of the population died. So it, it just, I just say that to illustrate, like we in Britain, in the wider West, we don't think about that. Right? We don't like we. Mm. The one Brit the British mm. do know about is the Irish potato famine, and it's debated what role the British state did or didn't have in that. Right. But that's like not in our history at all. And the British repeated the feat during the First World War, where they exported a lot of food from Iran to feed their soldiers, again, accentuating a, a famine greatly, where, again, up to 20% of the population died. Mm. Um, so there have been, like, 1953 wasn't the first coup either. There was a revolution in Iran in 1906, where the Iranian people, and this is composed of people who were like, more on the secular progressive side of things and mm. more the religious hardliners, they got sick of the, the Shah then. This isn't the uh, Pahlavi family. This is the, the previous dynasty that had been around for about 180 years. They got sick of their kings just giving the country away to foreigners. So they overthrew them. A lot of back and forth violence. But Iran emerged from that as a parliamentary democracy, which the British and the Russians, first the Russians, then the British, that squashed. And with the uh, Bolshevik Revolution, the Russians were then out of Iran, leaving it to the British, and they, they, they couldn't. There was too much opposition to them running the country directly under British rule. So they had to put an Iranian face on the British rule, hmm. and they were unhappy with the prime minister. So that's when they brought this guy, who was just called Reza. He was a stable boy turned Cossack soldier because the Iranians had their own version of the Cossacks. Uh, didn't have a second name, and they had him instigate a coup for them. Which the end result was, he ended up sitting on the peacock throne as Reza Pahlavi, the the Shah of Iran, the father of the last Shah. Mm. Um, and he's a, an interesting character, right? He he was a real modernizer and a reformer and opened like 800 girl schools and similar to Ataturk in Turkey at that time. They were sort of admirers of each other. They wanted to, he wanted to modernize the country and have it as like a Western country and get away from backwards traditions. But he was utterly brutal. Like so anyone who disagreed, like if there was a, a political protest, machine gun the lot. Okay, when the um, the the like the nomadic people in Iran didn't want to become a part of the integrated society he was building, he just had to put them in internment camps and starve them and shot them because uh, he saw them as like the Native Americans. Okay, the, the, and what the U.S. government done it got rid of the native population so we could build a civilization. So he thought he was doing the same thing, mm. and then he the British got rid of him because he was too much of an admirer of Adolf Hitler. So he wasn't hard enough on the Germans during right. the Second World War. So then they, they were looking around and they nearly brought back like someone from the previous royal house. But they ended up with his son, Mohammed Reza, um, who was Shah then for the 1940s. But that's when you have the, the role of the prime minister, Mossadegh, who would, comes in as prime minister. And that role regains some of the power it had lost. And Mossadegh had been in political exile for 20 years because he was one of the main opposition figures to Reza Shah taking all this centralized power upon himself. So, and as you explained, Adam, the CIA, for some reason, decided to get rid of Mossadegh. And I say for some reason, because they probably could have got a very good oil deal out of them and done business with Iran in the way they had done with Saudi Arabia. But 
the Dulles brothers under Eisenhower given the boot because he he stands up to the British who were always like scamming the Iranians out of their oil money. And they would do things like they were meant to educate Iranian workers and just like never did so so they could maintain control of the oil in perpetuity. So that that's that's when the period of American rule starts. And then Mohammad Reza, uh, the country improved because like obviously having oil money is like playing Sim City with the cheat codes on, right? I don't know if you ever played Sim City, Adam, but that was like a big no, game no. over here. Or you had to build a city, right? But you could like on this computer game. I'm sure a lot of the audience will know it, although get the gist of it. Like that. Uh, but if you put the cheat codes in, you can just print money essentially. And that's kind of like what having the oil is. And but they were um there's a lot of opposition to Mohammed Reza recycling that money into the United States because the United States are happy to pay him as long as he bought American weapons with the money he got. So Iran became both a financer of the American arms industry and a proxy force in the Middle East, then like America's uh, watchdog over there. So obviously that all, all came tumbling down. But America's concern, the United States government's concern over human rights today, that just wasn't a thing when Mohammed Reza was also machine gunning protesters and also locking people up in torture chambers and disposing of any political prisoners. Iran had, Amnesty International said Iran had like the worst human rights record in the world uh, during the time the, the Shah was there. Now, I'm not sure how they're comparing that to a country like Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge, but mm. it does, it's not a pretty picture, right? So Iran has, has always been this kind of brutal place and it only became a problem for the United States post the Islamic revolution and post the hostage crisis. You know, it's similar to what we have seen in the Middle East just recently in the past, what, uh, 20, 25 years. For example, what we want to do in Iran is basically implement a new government. And look how this has turned out. For example, Iraq. In 1990, we tried. Saddam Hussein survived the, the attempt. And basically, uh, the United States became disinterested in removing the government and let him linger on for a couple of years. After 9-11, this basically was used as a pretext to invade the country again. And under pressure from neocon war hawks like Robert Kagan and William Crystal, and of course, Paul Wolfowitz, when he wrote the uh, Wolfowitz Doctrine, as it was infamously called, they basically pressured not just the Bush administration, uh, but the Clinton administrations to invade the country because of the threat that it posed. And, and after 9-11, the United States invaded the country, destroyed the government, liquidated it through the Iraqi Provisional Regiment Order Number 1 and Number 2, which liquidated the military and the police, which led to total anarchy and destruction of the country from within. Meanwhile, the United States had no plans to or goals to take control of the country and allow this to happen, which basically facilitated the growth of groups like the Islamic State and the Levant. When you remove a dictator and you destroy the government infrastructure, it leads to total anarchy of the country or a breakdown or weakening of the government, which leads to the growth of the religious sector, the overly religious sector, usually the extremists. And we saw this again, uh, fast forward to 2011 in Syria, where we uh, pressure the government to remove himself or the United States remove him for Bashar al-Assad from government. Well, what happened? Well, we tried to basically destroy the infrastructure of the country. Assad is basically a, uh, a dictator, same as Saddam Hussein, um, but had the respect of certain people and kept the religious sector under wraps. And what happened was the United States, under a very covert program at the time called Timber Sycamore, the Obama administration basically signed off on a CIA project 
headed by David Petraeus at the time, General David Petraeus, to basically train and fund the jihadists who at the same time were at war, uh, terrorism with, and basically tried to overthrow Assad, even though that failed. And the program under the, ended in 2017 under the Trump administration. We saw something at the same time precipitating in Libya, where the um, Obama administration did not want to intervene, even though it was under intense pressure by his secretary of state, Hillary Clinton, and of course, other the uh, female uh, influences of the Obama administration, people like Susan Rice and Samantha Power, who wrote a letter pressuring Obama to do what? Get involved and remove the brutal dictator Muammar Gaddafi. And what happens? Well, Gaddafi is removed through the uh, influences of the nationalist office government in Libya. And and what took place? Well, these religious terrorists that took over the country, and now you have open-air slave markets and destruction. What I'm trying to say is the history shows that trying to remove a dictator using U.S. military influence and imperialistic interference usually leads to a worse problem in the end, which will not be a problem for the military-industrial complex and other uh, coalition partners who want to get in on the fight in the war. It's a reciprocating problem. So usually what happens is you oust the dictator, in comes in either a rogue faction of the government or these terrorist groups like the Islamic State or al-Qaeda affiliates to basically try and fight for as little territory as possible. And then the United States basically says, oh, we got to destroy these people. And, you know, of course, that's the extension of the war on terrorism. That's not going to be the case with Iran, by the way, because you can't lean on the excuse of al-Qaeda, which is basically destroyed now with the death of Osama bin Laden, Dr. Ahmed al-Shahiri, Suleiman Abu Gates doing life here in the United States. Muhammad Atef is long dead. Muhammad al-Masri is dead. So there's nobody left. And so you can't use the excuse that al-Qaeda is behind and we got to keep going to these countries. I don't know what they're going to do with Iran, to tell you the truth. I know that the um, the Democratic establishment under Joe Biden uh, right now is more uh, uh, more concerned with the Ukraine, where all these weapons are, are flooding Eastern Europe now. And we don't know where these uh, weapons are going to. So says the Pentagon in the Bloomberg article. But also at the same time, the right wing who are denouncing the Ukrainians are trying to force the issue of a U.S. invasion in Iran and also in, in China as well. So history hasn't been kind regarding the Middle East and U.S. interventionism, especially when they use the excuse of removing a brutal dictator from power. Yeah, it's as if they've all watched Star Wars and the way it mm. ends that you get rid of the dictator and everyone has a party with Ewoks. You know, but that's obviously, I mean, actually, I think the Star Wars sequels missed a trick, okay, because they, they went back, just they basically retold the, the previous stories where they could have done a much more interesting story of well, what actually happens when a revolutionary group takes over a state and what kind of problems do you then encounter? And that's what obviously plays out. Now, you could say, actually, well, a part of the problem is it's not the intention of the United States government to bring freedom and democracy to these lands. Quite what the intention is, I don't know. Well, to put someone in who is compliant to, U.S. business interests and resources and U.S. geostrategic vision, or perhaps it is just destruction to weaken the states, and particularly states that could potentially be hostile to Israel. Yes, and I think 
one such matter at hand that the United States is basically worried as well as uh, Israel is the matter of Iran's ties with Hezbollah. Hezbollah, which is a Lebanese organization and which was created after the Israeli uh, invasion of Lebanon in uh, 1982, in which the idea of the group Hezbollah among the clerics who studied in Najaf, uh, which is basically a city in central Baghdad, uh, which has long ties with Lebanon, and adopted the model set out by none other than the Ayatollah Khomeini during the revolution in Iran in 1979. And the organization was established as part of that Iranian effort of funding and creating a one group. Like Iran, Iran has their own like Hezbollah group. It's called the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, but they're much more oriented on a central figure where Hezbollah is oriented on the movement itself. It has uh, similar uh, tenets to it, but it's uh, fundamentally uh, different. And what Israel was basically worried about in the 1980s, uh, late 70s, early 80s, was that Israel didn't have that political strength that they do now with the United States which is the reason why the implementation of the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, APAC, was created for, to strengthen ties with the state, because Israel really wasn't a military power. In the same sense as, say, Saudi Arabia is not a military power. They depend on the United States to give them weapons, to basically act as a big brother, sorts, if you will, regarding military might. So Israel was very worried with this group, Hezbollah, and, of course, their ties to the country, which is basically a belt, connection belt, to Iran, to Lebanon, which is Syria, uh, northern Iraq. Of course, this was very worrisome to Israel. And so the paper came out, uh, forgive me for the year, but it was called the Oded Yunan Plan. And uh, what happened was Oded Yunan, who is a very influential figure in Israeli um, politics, wanted to create a paper based upon how Israel would basically circumvent or influence the country's governments that had a connection to Iran. And at the same time, also uh, try and destabilize the Sunni Arab regions, but they were much more uh, adaptable, much more uh, apt to uh, act as Israeli's benefactor because of the ongoing centuries-long civil war of sorts regarding Sunni and Shia arguments and disagreements and war regarding uh, the two main powers of the Sunni and Shia divide, and that is Iran and Saudi Arabia. And so that war, along with the political ramifications from the Oded Yunan paper, all has come to a head now after 9-11, and especially now what we're seeing with the Middle East you see the countries like Lebanon, Syria, Iran, all come under either direct U.S. interventionism, Israeli bombardment, in which we see in Syria, uh, which I find to be uh, ironic in its own, uh, in its totality. You have, you know, this group like Islamic State and Levant, a brutal Salafist group that are beheading people, beheading even, you know, Shia Muslims. They, they hate Shia Muslims more than Jews and polytheists and atheists, for example. But 
Israel is basically using their air force to basically bomb not the Islamic State, but the Hezbollah, Hezbollah proxy forces that are fighting against the Islamic State. And, it's, you know, the, the media reports are basically few and far between, but we do have foreign press that are, are not influenced as much as the United States is and reporting that, you know, Israel is basically bombing Damascus, you know, the capital of Syria, and destroying the one entity uh, along with the Turks and uh, Russia, you know, trying to repel the Islamic invasion of the country and you wonder, like, you know, whose side is uh, fighting for who and who's fighting for what. And you never really know at the same time, uh, you know, whose side is really on. But one, one thing we can discern, Richard, is that there are much more bigger factors at play. And that is form, uh, that is um, politics of the countries of uh, Iran, Israel, United States and Saudi Arabia, because those are the benefactors of all this theater that uh, we talked about today. And so... With Hezbollah having lost that connection straight from Iran to Lebanon, I think that was the ultimate goal of Israel, of Saudi Arabia, of the United States, to basically surround Iran with U.S. bases and with Israel and Saudi Arabia acting as the pincher in regards to uh, destroying the country itself. Right, yeah, because there's no easy solution, is it? There's no, no like in the, the document... Which path to Persia? The Brookings Institute document from two thousand nine, a neoconservative document. They just brazenly assess all these different ways that the Iranian regime could be gotten rid of without necessarily assessing the wisdom of such a thing. And I don't think they come up really with with a good answer that revolution is that easy to incite, or a coup could be, or certainly not a military invasion, because of the geography and size of Iran, how difficult that would be for the U.S. Army. It's not Iran is a very different creature to Iraq. You know, I, I always said that there wasn't sanctions on Iran. And as each year passes by, it got worse and worse for the country. And that's what basically is. It's a waiting game. Economic sanctions are a waiting game. It's for the long term. And as, as the country itself uh, isn't run smoothly internally, there's civil unrest, of course. And who's to blame? Well, the government itself. And because you also have... Another precipitating factor at play, which is the religious monarchy that's involved with government, which is also repressing the who, the people affected under these economic sanctions. And so the, out, the, 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 the effects of the sanctions of the brutal regime itself is almost like a gift to the CIA. Now, I'm also going to say that um, not everything the CIA is full. What the CIA does, basically, and this is throughout the historical record, is they'll take a situation and basically manipulate it to their own advantage. So with these protests going on, uh, I wouldn't be shocked at all, Richard, if you had uh, CIA-backed uh, uh, groups, small groups that are you know, not polarizing and don't bring attention, but have influence within their towns and cities of Iran that basically say, we need to basically try and remove the religious structure of Iran and impose a more democratic government, which basically is exactly what the wishes are of countries like the United States, Israel, and Saudi Arabia. More so Israel and Saudi Arabia, because they have a more direct vested interest in controlling the Middle East. The United States basically 
has no long-term goals in regards to the government itself as long as their their interests are met and as long as the U.S. military and corporate uh, industries are, uh, you know, I guess, so to speak, greasing the wheels and the money comes in and, uh, you know, that's, that's I think, is interesting. Not a threat to Israel and yeah. recycling the petrodollars back into the U.S. economy. Well, they do have a proxy force, effectively, to aim to take down the Iranian government, the People's Mujahideen Organization of Iran. Is oh, exactly yes, that. right. Yeah, very, I'm glad you brought that oh, up. The MEK. There's a lot of history behind this group. And incidentally, not the People's um, Mujahideen of, of Iran. And uh, basically, it has been in its own do uh, documents that it advocates the overthrowing of the Iranian government. And this goes back decades. And of course, you know, it's the it's a back by radical leftists in the country itself. And of course, the main antagonist of the MEK is the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Public Guards, the IRERG. And of course, you know, you have this, you know, back and forth uh, conflict that's been going on in the country for uh, many decades and, uh, and more so after the fall of the uh, the, the, uh, the fall of Rava Pezlavi, uh, the MAK refused to take part in the, the referendum, which uh, led to Khomeini preventing Masoud uh, Rajavi and other MEK members to have influential positions in office because, one, Khomeini hated uh, socialism and ascribed MEK to socialism, and two, uh, he wanted, of course, to... Uh, run the country through Sharia law. So the MAK has been at war with the religious structure ever since then, more so uh, from 1979 on forward. Who's behind the MEK other than the United States who basically uh, funds MEK through a number of these um, movements and protests, especially now, recently. Newsweek came out with an article, the headline, which is basically something to the effect that the Trump administration uh, was going to basically uh, side with the MEK if there ever was a huge civil war in the country of Iran, which I found to be quite interesting. Uh, I do believe that at one time, former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani had connections with MEK. Have you heard about that at all? I think yeah, it rings a bell out of me. Yeah. yeah, I think so. And I, sorry to say, I, I'm not too familiar with that. And so I can't really, I just heard about that rumor. And um, I thought that was interesting in its own right, because what was happening in 2001, well, the United States basically tried to pressure the coalition partners to basically uh, blame Iran for housing al-Qaeda militants after the 9-11 attacks. Meanwhile, it was Iran who tried to, uh, who housed part of the bin Laden family because they were trying to cross into Afghanistan and they uh, house arrested them. And what happened was, the Iran Iranians in 2003, Richard, met with U.S. officials. This is right before the invasion of Iraq and basically said, we have members of the bin Laden family and we'll hand them over to you with no no deals. None. We'll just give it to them. And the United States refused. And I'll tell you why. It's because with Al-Qaeda members in Iran, they could basically blame Iran for housing and facilitating Al-Qaeda. And that was what they wanted to do with Iraq but they found no connection. The CIA didn't anyway. And so the United States basically uh, created the Office of Special Plans, 
uh, with Douglas fight to Paul Wolfowitz, and it, you know, created information that blamed Al Qaeda on, on 9-11 with e Iraq, and that was all based on the line. And so, you know, with this uh, MEK group, we have a lot of U.S. interest in funding the group that basically try to destroy or, or weaken the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard from within. Yeah, they, there was an attempted rapprochement from Iran towards the United States after the 9-11 attacks, which, so the Iranians put the U.S. in contact with the Northern Alliance at the time of the invasion of mm, Afghanistan. Mm, mm. And then I think they were quite surprised when they ended up on George Bush's Axis of Evil list. It was oh, like fully rebuffed right. then, yeah. Mm, so mm. it was just thrown back at them. And by the way, just to add to that, Richard, Iran is the only country sued for the 9-11 attacks, or part of it, because two hijackers, Khalid al-Midar and Awapahadmi, had traveled through the country. Right, to get, yeah. To get to Afghanistan and the United... And Iran basically was... They were to show up in court, in U.S. court, and I think, what was it, last year or the year before that? It was just recent where the U.S. Uh, Iranian didn't show up to court, didn't, you know, challenge the charge because they thought it was so ludicrous. Yeah. Then they were sued for for their part in 9-11 attacks. I, I thought that was highly uh, interesting. And I said, wow, you know, the one country that would fight with the United States would, against al-Qaeda would be Iran. Yeah, just anything to make a connection, really. No, there is not. I mean, there is It, it justifies this whole military bureaucracy. I think the U.S. has realized that the whole central command structure was created to stop the Soviet Union in case they ever invaded the Middle East. They poured down through Afghanistan into Iran. And the Soviet Union is gone now, but you need a justification for this massive military bureaucracy. So you, you do need, the United States needs to maintain an enemy nation in the Middle East. Yeah, there always has to be that enemy, right, Richard? There always has to be that threat. Because without the threat, we don't need to fund or give additional benefits to the Pentagon, to the CIA, to the intelligence services, to the foreign interests abroad in order to defeat that enemy. So whether the enemy is going to be a religious fact, uh, religious uh, institution such as Al-Qaeda or Islamic State, and if that isn't the threat, well, then the threat is the, the, the governments themselves. And right now what we're seeing is a revisitation of sorts into the... Cold War 2.0. Uh, the threat is Russia. The threat is Iran. The threat is China. Because no longer are the threats of religious fundamentalists. Because they're all destroyed because the United States and the coalition partners destroyed them. Okay. Anything else you want to say on this topic, Adam, about Iran? No, I would say that pretty much covers a lot of what is going on. I would say that, you know, I posed a question once to Scott Horton about three years ago, Richard. Um, mm -hmm. And I wanted to get his opinion on what he saw as a potential war in the future. And um, I gave him three choices. Would it be Iran? Would it be Russia? Would it be China? And he, he said it most definitely wouldn't be Iran. And I, I opined, I said that it would. And I, but I wanted to hear what he had to say. And he said that, well, Iran is basically a very... Uh, hard country to conquer geographically. The, mm. the south of the country has a lot of like uh, mountains. It basically was it would not be feasible um, to attack the country on the, 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 on the southern end. They also have a, a distinct formidable navy that Iraq doesn't have and you know Libya and Syria don't have. So it would be a very tough country to defeat and it would take long approximately like 10 to 15 years. 
when I interviewed Lawrence Wilkerson, the assistant to uh, the Secretary of State Colin Powell in the Bush administration, I asked him a question about the invasion of Iran that he made a quote years ago about the generals walking out. Would he hold true today? And he said, absolutely, more so today than ever, because of the simple fact that look what happened in Iraq. We, we basically failed in that regard. Afghanistan was a monumental failure and the longest war in U.S. history. He goes, Iran is neither one of those countries. In fact, it's much more uh, military advanced than both of the countries even combined. And he said that the generals of the Pentagon know it. But the people who, who don't care and who do know it but don't care are the uh, foreign influences of the government, such as Israel, such as Saudi Arabia, and, of course, those uh, maniacs, I like to say, of the neocons who have an influence in both left and right, it seems, in the politics today. And so I think Iran basically will be the next country the United States goes to war with because, for one, it's not a nuclear country. And two, it's basically a country that the two main political foreign influences of Israel and Saudi Arabia want. And what Israel and Saudi Arabia wants, they usually get. And But it all depends on the administration that we receive. The Biden administration, Joe Biden is very old, and I don't think he can take a war mentally and physically. But if you get someone like a Governor DeSantis, a young uh, Zionist supporter, admitted Zionist himself, he could basically withstand such as a long-term theater, conflict theater of 10 to 15 years. I don't even think Joe Biden could live as long, to be honest with you. So that I do think that in the next, we'll, we'll know in 2024 with the new president. For those who are saying, well, how do you know it's a new president? Because uh, I, I don't think Biden is going to run again. And yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't think the Democrats are going to win anymore. I'm going to disagree, Adam. I think so strategically around the reason it gives all the missiles to Hezbollah in Lebanon is so in the mm. case of war, mm. they could strike Israel and they're also capable of striking Saudi Arabia and they're capable mm. of closing the Straits of Hormuz, which stops a lot of the oil coming out of Saudi Arabia as well mm. as the Iranian oil. So geostrategically, uh, in addition to what you said about the mountainous uh, nature of the country, it's like three times the size of Iraq. It's not as divided as Iraq with this big mm. Sunni Shia Kurdish line for it. There's Kurds in Iran, but it's not like as divided uh, in, in the sense that you can turn one half the population against the other so easily. However much Iranians, secular progressive Iranians might hate their government, they don't want another repeat of 1953. I would think that the the strategy for Iran would be more akin to Sibia, Sibia, Syria and Libya mm. <laughs> rather than <laughs> Iraq, okay? And it will be to foment internal dissent with groups like mm. the MEK and start foment a destruction from within rather than an over U.S. invasion? Well, I, a Hort, I didn't eludicate uh, Horton's point, and it was similar to what you just said. And um, I can't disagree with this because actually this is the reason why the uh, International Atomic Agency, the IAEA, basically do annual threat reports regarding Iranians' capabilities of producing enriched uranium, in which according to whatever reports you read, because some reports are influenced by the United States and manipulated too as well. Um, I usually go by the IAEA because they're neutral. And in their reports, they basically say that the Iranian government are indeed um, adhering to the limitations 
uh, provided to them by the, the, the conference, the IAEA conference, which was held in 2013. And, but the United States basically say, well, we run our own reports uh, uh, independent of yours. In other words, they don't, tr- they don't like the IAEA reports because Iran is not producing enough enriched uranium, according to those reports, to make it a volatile threat to Israel, the United States, right? So basically, they create these heightened alerts and tensions in the region. Uh, what was it? Uh, the bombing of the Arabian oil tanker in the Straits of Hormuz, mm. which was blamed on Iran, but they didn't know. Uh, there was other reports saying, no, Iran was not behind that. Uh, f- former, pro- uh, for- well, not former anymore. He's now Prime Minister again, Benjamin Netanyahu, going to the United Nations in 2017 with a cartoon cutout of this bomb look ridiculous, saying that Iran is so close to building a nuclear weapon, similar to that when he went to the United Nations, uh, to a Senate uh, armed committee and told uh, the committee that Iraq is a threat to the region because they're building nuclear weapons. As long as we have these types of influences and dangers, people who push for conflict, yeah, I, I won't back down from this fight. You know, I won't. Uh-huh. But, I, but I think you're right, uh, Richard and Scott Orton, in that effect that Iran is not something that is quite beneficial in regards to a long-term war. But I do think if we could get that, you know, one administration that is very beholden to APAC or, or the Gulf and the enticement of Gulf money, I do think we could see it by about 2025. I'll, 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 as a former Vegas resident, I'll put my $10 in for a bet. Okay, Adam. Well, that we'll come back to that then in 2025 or around and see how, how things are progressing. Sure, sure. Thanks very much, Adam. Oh, thank you very much. I like the talk discussion.